Welcome to Religiously Literate. I'm Jay. And I'm Ryan. Join us as we explore the diversity of religious belief around the world. Are all Buddhists vegetarians? Was the Buddha a god? Is Buddhism a philosophy or a religion? Stay tuned as we answer these questions and learn a little bit along the way. Thank you so much for joining us today on episode seven of Religiously Literate. Uh, We appreciate you tuning in uh, because we had our short little hiatus here because, you know, life happens sometimes. Um, And so we're glad to be back. Um, We're here to talk about another one of the, I guess, yeah, this is one of the big five. Um, One of the big five. Um, This week we're going to talk about Buddhism. Um, And we have somewhat agonized over this episode because Buddhism as a thing is hard to talk about by itself, kind of like Christianity, like where do you even start? So to get started, um, just a little context for Buddhism is that over half of the world's population live in areas where Buddhism is or has been a dominant cultural force in some way, Hmm. Um, which I found surprising. Um, But then again, I guess China is included there. And so China's got a lot of people. That makes sense. Um, In total numbers, close to 500 million people adhere to Buddhism, which makes it the fourth largest religion in the world. Um, And it's a fast, it's one of the fastest growing traditions in the United States. Um, And like I mentioned before, it's kind of hard to define Buddhism. Um, It's not very centralized at all. Um, There's a lot of variety in practice in practice, in scripture, even statements of faith. So what people, um, the sort of basic tenets of Buddhism vary between countries um, to to an extent. And so, yeah, there are lots of different kinds. There's three main branches. Um, Theravada and Mahayana are the two biggest ones. Vajrayana sometimes gets thrown in there. There's also Zen, there's Pure Land, there's Thai Buddhism, there's Chan Buddhism, there's Tiendai Buddhism. We're not going to try and talk about all of those specifically today. Um, We have some episodes slated in the queue later um, to go over some of those, particularly Pure Land Buddhism, because that's my favorite Buddhism, if you're going to have a favorite, because why not? Um, (laughs) But beyond that, um, I think we should probably start where we always do. You want to start with the history, Jay? Yeah, let's do it. Although I will say right before going into that, one question that a lot of people have is, is Buddhism a religion? Often it's, is it a religion? Is it a philosophy, a way of life, or code of exit ethics? I think technically it could be argued that it's all of the all the above. But in terms of religion specifically, the answer that I'm going to give is it depends on the definition. If you believe that religion must have a supreme being, then Buddhism technically is not a religion. But if you're working off of sacred versus profane, having a community, uh, moral ethics, or just rules that a person people must follow, then it definitely falls into a religion. And I think a lot of people who consider themselves Buddhist would argue that it is a religion. I'm pretty sure there are plenty who also do not think it's a religion, but for the purposes of answering whether or not it's religion, I think I'm going to leave it to the listener to figure out how they define religion and whether or not they think it's a religion. So just want to put, out, put that out there. But turning to the history, the founder of Buddhism is a man named Siddhartha Gautama, and he was born in Terai, the Terai Lowlands, which is just inside of Nepal on the uh, Nepal-India border. 
And he was of the uh, Sakya tribe, which was a, they were pretty well off, like respected in their community. He was also of the uh, warrior class, I believe. So right behind, or caste, so right behind the Brahmins. So pretty high up, well respected. So we're in a Hindu context right? Yes. So he grew up, was born into a Hindu community. It's generally accepted that he lived from 566 to 486. Modern scholars kind of debate this, but that's kind of like the working number that generally you'll get. So before I get into his specific life, I will say that a lot of his biography comes from the scriptures, which are actually just called the canon (laughs) in Buddhism. And it's... The canon was basically, or canons, I guess we can say, are oral traditions that came from the time of the Buddha that were preserved through oral chanting. There are, they were done in several languages, but the only one that survived from his time was the one that was in Pali. And turns out Pali is the language that is closest to the language that he spoke, which I think is really interesting. That is a fun coincidence. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So... The, the Pali one is, is the one that's preserved. It's committed to writing by uh, Sri Lankan Buddhists around the middle of the first century BC. And it consists of three divisions or baskets, which are called uh, Pitaka. And there's first the discourses. This is the Sutta Pitaka. Or these are sermons of the Buddha. And they're subdivided into additional five divisions. The second one is the monastic rule. And these are, this is often shortened to just the Vinaya, and so a lot of times you'll hear that, like, you know, monks adhere to the Vinaya. And this is just the rules for monastic discipline. And then the third one is the scholastic scholastic, uh, treatises, which is a slightly later, later compilation of scholastic works. So that's kind of the major canon. It should be noted, though, that the Pali canon is only authoritative in Theravada Buddhism. Uh, other schools have kind of compiled their own canons in different language, and there's often drastically different content. So that's kind of to give you a frame of where this information is coming from. It's coming from the Pali canon that was committed to memory and then eventually written down significantly after he died. So the general kind of story that most people go with, there's a much more detailed version that we could give, but since we were later on going to do a version of the Buddha's life himself and just who he was, I won't give you that. Uh, But I will say that he, uh, there's legend has it that uh, upon his birth, his, his family was told that he would either be a great king or a great religious leader. So he's born... He's married at 16, um, and his wife quickly bears him a son named Rahula. Shortly after the birth of his son, he, well, I I was named not shortly after, but during, not long after his son is born and is growing, he leaves the palace and has four signs, the dying man, the sick man, the old man, and realizes that all of these things are gonna to happen to me, I can't escape them, which is kind of the fourth sign. And so decides to seek religious knowledge, leaves in the middle of the night, and spends six years searching for enlightenment. And this is kind of how he reaches the middle path. 
Um, the keynotes are here, married at 16, leaves at 29, enlightenment at 35, dies at 80. That's a general story that most people will get. One thing that I do want to say that's really important, at least it's important to me because it means I get to talk about my travels, <laughs> is he gives his first sermon right outside of uh, Benares, also known as Varanasi, when he uh, discovers the middle path. At that time, he hadn't been eating, so he starts eating again and starts meditating. And he has five former associates who see him eating, and they're like, this guy has lost it. He can't be trusted. He's you know, going down the wrong path. So they abandon him and go on about their lives. So when he goes to uh, Benares, right outside of it, it's called Deer Park, where he actually uh, goes, he meets with them, and, and, and they can see that he has been transformed, and he's like, I want to talk to you. And so he ends up giving his first sermon. They become his first uh, followers, and this first sermon is called Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dharma, and it's where he lays out the Four Noble Truths, which we'll, which we'll talk about later. But why this is relevant to me is because when I studied abroad in India, I actually wanted, I went to this place. It was a, It's about a... I don't know. I, I took a, a rickshaw there, so it, it's a little slow. But it's maybe like a 30-minute uh, drive outside the city-ish, maybe? I don't know. So how long does that take to get there by rickshaw? Roughly that amount of time. Oh, I imagine okay. if it was like an, like an actual car, maybe it would have been a little faster. Oh. I also, I will say that my sense of time is distorted because it was over 100 degrees when I went. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so like... It was delirious. Yeah, I, I, yeah probably. <laughs> and I remember trying to get the rickshaw, and he was like no, it's so hot. You don't want to go there. Like, but I do want to go there. Like I have a but water bottle and half the water I drink, I'd already drank before we even got there. So he was right in telling me not to go. But the cool thing is, is they have like this little uh, park area, I guess, which would have been Deer Park. And uh, you can go and there are temples kind of right there a lot of them are kind of ruins but it's like this is the spot where the buddha gave his first sermon and then probably for the next two blocks maybe half a kilometer or so there are all these really nice uh temples and each temple is built by a different country where buddhism has influence so like the thais have one there's one there's an indian one there's a sri lanka one china japan and on and on and on and you can go into each temple it's it's almost like a bunch of houses on a block but they happen to be temples so they're not massive but it's really interesting to see the different types of architecture in relation to each country as well as how they portray the buddha because some countries the buddha is very emaciated versus we all i think are familiar with the kind of jolly stomach showing fat buddha of china chinese restaurant buddha yeah. yes so to be able to see all of that is really cool and you can go and like walk around and they have where you can you know give donations whatever but that is where he gave his first sermon apparently so that's really cool i would encourage people to go but probably not in the middle of the summer i mean i went in may and it was <laughs> awful so go like in the spring or the fall anyway um so he gives his first sermon lays out the four noble truths and during this time, as I mentioned, the five followers become, or the five who had rejected him become his first followers, and then they are immediately ordained as monks. This is known as uh, bhikkhu. And then he, shortly after, he gives a second sermon, and they all become enlightened. And this is where they move from being bhikkhus or monks to arahants. Uh, and the reason why they're called arahants and not Buddhas is because a Buddha is someone who receives enlightenment on his or her own, whereas Arahant receives it from someone else. 
Uh, so this happens, his teachings start to spread. It's not long where he has roughly 60 arahants, and he encourages them to spread his teachings. And so they do this, and within five years of his initial first sermon, uh, the monk, an order of monks has been established. Initially, he's reluctant to establish an order of nuns, but he's convinced to do it, and he does. Unfortunately, that doesn't really have the, the same amount of success that the monk order did. So even today, there are some countries that will not ordain nuns where men can be ordained. So he tried. It just it didn't work out. Uh, and then he, go, he spends the rest of his life traveling on foot to spread his teachings. And it's estimated that he walked a region that's this, in size, it's equivalent to the state of Pennsylvania. Or for our international listeners, it would be just smaller than Ireland. So a lot of walking that he did in those 45 years. And then one of the um, canons, the Discourse on the Great Decrease, provides information leading up to the months, or information on the months leading up to his death. So there is this misconception that he died due to food poisoning given to him by a, uh, well, the food poisoning didn't come from a lay follower, but a lay follower gave him pork. <laughs> and then out food poisoning. Because of the pork that he ate, he got food poisoning, and this is what actually killed him. According to this text, that's not true. Well, he probably did receive food poisoning. I've also read where it was dysentery uh, from this pork, but it seems to be that he got the food poisoning, recovered, and dies shortly after. And it also seems like he decided when he wanted to die. So upon his death, he called all of his monks to him and asked them if they had questions so he could clarify anything about his teachings. No one had questions, which is a sign that he had been very clear in his teachings. And then supposedly he decides or he announces that there will be no successor for him. Instead, Dharma will be the guide once he's gone. And he also encourages the monks to look at the Vinaya or code of, for monks that he had created. And according to the canon, he dies laying on his right side. He asks to be cremated and his, for his manes to be put in a supta, or sup, yeah, supta, which is a bell-shaped monument. Apparently, his last words upon death were, decay is inherent in all things. Be sure to strive with clarity of mind for nirvana. And he says this. He goes into a series of meditative trances, and he obtains nirvana for the last time. And that is the life and times of Siddhartha Gautama, also known as the Buddha. Now, that's really interesting that, because I didn't know that he, after he died, he um, basically said, you know, now you just have the writings. And that's, that's going to be your teacher. I think it's really interesting that both in Buddhism and in Sikhism, two traditions that come out of a Hindu context that both of those sort of, because that sort of happens with Sikhism too. Yeah, I'm wondering if that has to do with the, like, Indian culture at the time, mm -hmm. where, you know, if you have a follower, it's likely that that person may change what you said or something like that. Although, I mean, to be fair, in Sikhism, they do have, what, nine gurus before the 10th guru right. is declared? Mm -hmm. So. It's similar, but there, there, are, there is a line of successors that are chosen before they decide to stop that. 
but I, I'm just wondering if there's a sense of this isn't sustainable or we've seen what happens in other communities when a successor is picked. Right. So we're not going to do that. I also think just in a large Indian context that in some ways, Buddhism, uh, Sikhism, these are all Jainism, which we haven't talked about. Mm-hmm. These are all rejections mm-hmm. of Brahmin dominated Hinduism or right. Brahmin dominated society. So I think that this, without picking a successor, you leave authority to the people themselves, which isn't something that is inherent mm-hmm. at that time in Indian culture, particularly because of Hinduism. Right. So I think that that may have a major influence in why there is not a successor in um, Buddhism. Also, I mean, he, the man spends his entire life preaching and trying to, I don't want to say necessarily convert people, but he's trying to help them find enlightenment. And I feel like he never considered himself to be the center of the movement, mm-hmm. right? Like he goes, he teaches people, and then he encourages them to spread these teachings. Right. And so I think... It's somewhat evangelical almost, in a way. Yeah, it's super evangelical. But I also think just like by the nature of what he's doing, why would I have a successor when I myself don't practice as if right. I am the leader of this community? Right. He's already decentralized it from the yeah. from go, really. Let's, should we talk about some beliefs a little bit then? Sure. <clears throat> so to start talking about beliefs in Buddhism, we have to take a short step back to Hinduism. Um, so if you haven't listened to our Hindu episode, that's episode four, because there are a lot of concepts that overlap between Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, and I don't think we probably won't get into all of them here, but the really important ones are that throughout your life or that everyone is stuck in a cycle of birth and rebirth. And this is called samsara. And to break out of that cycle or sorry, um, when you die, your next rebirth is determined by the karma that you've accumulated through all of your lifetimes, including the one that you just died from and then every single other rebirth before you. And that determines your future rebirth. I mean, those concepts carry over into Buddhism as well. Um, Yes. So keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that. Um, So Buddhism, like you were saying before, doesn't have any sort of creator deity or divinity of any sort, really. Um, which I kind of wondered about, and I didn't really find anything about like how Buddhists understand the creation of the universe. Yeah, so it's kind of complicated. I'm going to say just off the back that I am not an expert here. <laughs> I read this a few times, and I'm not entirely sure that I understand it, but it's also... So on one hand, there's a difference in time. In the Western world, we very much think of time as linear. Mm -hmm. So there's Mm -hmm. definitely a past, a present, and a future. In Buddhist concept, like time is circular. So there is no past, there is no present, there is no future. Time just exists. So that's the first part. 
that makes it difficult. <laughs> and then also time is infinite, which I don't, which isn't necessarily a dispute between the two types of thinking. Sure. But for them, so for instance, like the Buddha, which I didn't mention, but when he gets enlightenment, he goes through three phases. The first phase is where he can see all of his past lives and all his births, all of his rebirths, everything that he's done. Like you can see them every event that happened. The second one, he is able to see everyone else's lives and the things that they did, all their karma that led to their rebirths. And then in the third phase, that's when he actually reaches non-consciousness and is actually like reached nirvana, basically. And so... What's nirvana, Jay? The, what is Nirvana? <laughs> it's the goal for It's a for really Buddhists. good band from the 90s. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a goal for Buddhists, and technically it is a goal in Hinduism as well, but it's basically the simplified version is when you come, become one with the universe. So, um, that's, so he reached, and you can reach Nirvana in life. That's Nirvana in life is what it's called, and that's when you receive the awakening, and then you decide what you want to do. For him, he decided to teach. Other people, I guess, can say, I'm done with this. I'm done. I'm out. Reborn anymore. <laughs> that's that's at the point when you, once you reach Nirvana, you will no longer be reborn anymore. And then when he decided to die, that's when he did his final Nirvana in which he escaped permanently the cycle of rebirth. And that's basically what Nirvana is, escaping that cycle of rebirth. This, this is the, I guess, it, the story of the creation of the earth. And it says that they were inhabitants of a world system which had been destroyed. And so they'd been destroyed and they were reborn with the new one that was evolving. At first, their bodies were translucent and there was no distinction between the sexes. But as the fabric of the new world system became more dense, these spirit-like beings became attracted to it and thus began to consume it like food. Slowly, their bodies became um, less transparent until they began to resemble the physical bodies that we now have. And within that, because they'd been eating, the competition for food led to quarrels and disputes. And so the people were like, we need peace. So they elected a king for peace. And this specifically marks the origin of social life. And that's kind of how the earth began. But it's interesting because even in that story where we're talking about the, our current universe, it implies that they had already lived yeah. before and they were being reborn. Right. And so in Buddhist cosmology, there is this idea of an eon. An eon is amount of time that is equivalent to the life of a solar system. And the Buddha lived before reaching nirvana, had lived through many eons. So that's why I say that time is infinite and there's also this kind of idea that, um, which I think I sent you earlier, um, that, yeah, so this is a quote from the, one of the books that I read that says, world systems are thought to undergo cycles of evolution and decline lasting billions of years. They come into being, endure for a time, and then slowly disintegrate before being destroyed in a great cataclysm. In due course, they evolve again to a complete to a complete to, uh, in due course they evolve again to complete a vast cycle known as a great eon. 
Naturally, the beings who inhabit the physical universe are not unaffected by these events. And indeed, there is some suggestion that it is the moral status of the inhabitants that, that determine the fate of the world system. A world inhabited by ignorant and selfish people, for example, would deteriorate at a faster speed than one with a wise and virtuous population. This notion that beings are not just the caretakers of their environment, but in some sense create it, has important implications for Buddhist thinking on ecology. So that's kind of like their ideas around the world, that it, it's infinite. We have a world. At some point, it gets destroyed. We're all reborn anyway because you have infinite rebirths. You inhabit a new world, and then based on the virtues and the way people act will determine how fast that world is destroyed before a new one is created. And that's kind of their sense of creation and the world continuing. Hmm. Okay. Well, thanks for that brief aside, Jay. (laughs) Yeah, and I will say that, like, this is, like, definitely, like, into Buddhist cosmology, so I don't want to, like, get really deep into it. But that being said, with the rebirth piece of it, there are basically six realms that, that we exist in. Also should note that, like, the Buddha himself was very clear that we do not have, like, there's Ottoman, the self, the spirit that continues in Hinduism. That doesn't exist here. It, there's like a spiritual DNA, if you will, that continues from life to life, but it's not necessarily a soul, which is confusing, I know. Just know that it's not considered a soul, but there's like an essence of you that's not a soul that <laughs> goes from life to life. And so when you are reborn, there are six realms to which you can be reborn in. So we're most famous with the humans because that's what we are, but you can be reborn as a god. This is not necessarily seen as like a good thing because gods have a really good life. So they don't necessarily think about what they need to do. And therefore, and this is really important for understanding like what I, what we were saying before about how there are there's no like creator god or anything like that gods still exist in the greater yes. idea in the greater scheme of buddhism um like the buddha just like understood yeah. them as another type of existence another type of being that's not necessarily different. well i mean i think that you can even relate this to hinduism like we have mm-hmm. the creator the destroyer the sustainer right and then there are a whole bunch of other gods who have nothing to do with right. that and I think that this is very similar where like while some of those gods may be avatars of those three, like there are gods that just exist as right. gods and that's what they do. They're, they're not here to destroy or create anything. And I think that this is the same. I, the negative, like it's good because you have a good life if you're a god. The downside is that you are so happy and content that you don't strive for nirvana. So likely, you know, as a god, you will live a good life then you will die and you'll be reincarnated as something else. And so it's not like, it's temporarily good, but it's not ultimately a good right. thing. Then <clears throat> there are Titans, which are demon-like figures who are really caught up by like jealousy and they do bad things basically. So it doesn't really seem like it's a positive thing to be a Titan. Animals, we're all familiar with animals. It's Animals exist in a system in which humans control, so it's not seen as a very positive thing to be a human. You can be reborn into a hell, 
and there are many layers of hell. And I think the easiest way to think about it is purgatory in a Christian sense, and that just meaning that it's temporary. If you are reborn into a hell, you're not going to spend eternity there. You'll spend some time there, and then eventually you will be reborn into something else. And in the layers of hell, there are two different types of hells. There's a cold hell, a cold hell where you spend however much time you're there, like freezing, literally freezing. And then there's one, of course, where it's hot, and so negative things that are hot are happening to you. You can also be reborn as a ghost. These are seen as, as people or humans who had some type of specific connection to the world that they couldn't let go of. And so almost like a, as a punishment, you get reborn as a ghost where you, in essence, are near that thing that you were connected to, but you can't actually like touch it or experience it. So that almost seemed like one of the worst ones to me. But this is a realm in which we are constantly being reborn into. So again, you have infinite rebirths until you reach nirvana, which definitely sounds like it makes no sense. But um, until you reach nirvana, you can just keep being reborn. And so you can think of karma kind of as the elevator that takes you back and forth between these realms. Depending on what you do during that life, the karma that you store, that can either, some of it can be used in the life that you're currently living, or it can impact future lives. That will dictate what happens, what realm you go to, and then once you die, what your next realm will be. Okay, so so back to beliefs. <laughs> so so all of this is to say that that Buddhism, or that Buddhists aren't necessarily concerned about some sort of higher power. It's more focused internal. The emphasis is on yourself and the things that you can do to help yourself achieve nirvana or enlightenment. Um, essentially, what you're trying to do is become or attain Buddhahood, which just means the word Buddha just means enlightened one. Um, so it's a title. The guy's like we like you may have picked up his name was not Buddha. Um, he gained that title when he became enlightened, and so. Essentially, your job as a Buddhist is to work towards that through various types of self-discipline and personal transformation um, to get you there. And so I think an easy or I think the sort of entry level way to understand that is there's two things, um, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path that are sort of the basic tenets of Buddhism, more or less. And they're, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but these are more or less standard across Buddhism for the most part. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so basically the Four Noble Truths are that, one, life is suffering. Two, suffering is caused by things we want in the world, whatever those are. Three, to get rid of suffering, you have to get rid of wanting those things, whatever those are. And four, um, when you get rid of those desires, you end suffering. And you can do that by following the Eightfold Path. Can I just say, before you talk about the Eightfold yes. Path, I read a really good metaphor for the Four Noble Truths that I think is helpful. Right. And it's, if you think about the Four Noble Truths, think about a doctor who has found a cure for life's okay. illness. And so first, he diagnoses the disease, which is the first noble okay. truth. Secondly, he explains its cause, the second noble truth. Third, he determines that a cure exists, 
the third noble truth. And fourth, he sent out a treatment. Man, that's pretty good. I like yeah, that. and so because I think when you just read it, it's like okay, like yes, yeah. this is true, yes, yes, yes. But thinking about it in that context, it's like oh, okay, I, I see like where that. you're going. The prescription is not more cowbell; it's the eightfold path. All right, yes, I like this. So there you go. That's good. I really like that. Like every undergrad class needs to be using that because that's perfect. Um, so the eightfold path is eight things. And sometimes you'll see this represented as like a wheel, um, which I think that's referencing the wheel of the Dharma, if I'm not wrong, right? Yeah, the wheel in general is super, like that is the symbol of Buddhism in essence. But it's, I think it's because the Buddha spent a lot of time talking about the wheel. And I believe his first sermon was actually called Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dharma. Um, so the full path is basically how it's a guide to living your life more or less as a Buddhist. Um, and how if you, the, with the idea being that if you follow your life or you practice these eight things throughout your life, that you will be able to attain enlightenment. So the first of these is having the right view or the right understanding of the world. And so this has to do with understanding the, the Four Noble Truths, I think, uh, most clearly and using that to sort of frame your whole life. So if you understand all of life as suffering, which is, seems like a sort of bleak outlook on the world, but I mean, it's not totally wrong. <laughs> if, you, if you use that to understand everything, then that helps you like to get out of that cycle. Um, the next one is having the right thought or attitude. So basically liberating yourself from bad emotions and living through love and compassion for other people and other things in general. Um, having the right speech, so being uplifting, not, you know, talking smack on people and throwing shade. I struggle with this one if I was a Buddhist. Um, <laughs> having The next one is having the right action. So this is living by the five precepts, which what are the five precepts, Jay? The five precepts themselves are what's forbidden. So you're forbidden from killing, stealing, sexual immorality, lying, and taking intoxicants. The next one is having the right effort. So you're always, you know, trying to attain nirvana. You're always working towards enlightenment. Um, the next is having the right mindfulness. So again, developing your mind to have the right sort of understanding and awareness of the things that you're doing so that you know you're that you're paying attention so that you're not doing all of these other things that you know you're not supposed to be doing or you're not supposed to be thinking or feeling and then the last one is having right concentration so this is this one i found what i was finding in my notes was that or in my research was that it's kind of a it's it's not exactly a direct translation to right concentration um and there was a lot of like disagreement over what it actually translates to. Um, but it has to do with like the mindful, the like having a central focus on all of the practice of being a Buddhist. Mm. One of the, the translation that I found just called it meditation. Yeah. See, that's what I found that too. And there was like a lot of this, like, is it just meditation on like a practical level or is it like something bigger than that? I will say, so what I found actually divides those into three divisions. So the first two are wisdom Three, four, and five are morality, and then the last three are meditation. That makes sense. And in a in a lot of 
in a lot of ways, that is, I mean, you keep saying like this is essence or this is mm. important, but like at the, at the heart of Buddhism is wisdom, morality, and meditation. And I think that those are themes that in everything, all the teachings and all that, that's kind of, that's what the essence well, is to, because yeah. the key parts anyway to like a lot of people like how do you get to nirvana and in a way you just explained it but it really comes down to uh meditation wisdom and then living a moral life which could be argued why would you live a moral life because morality builds karma and if you have karma then you're going to stay in samsara but i think there's a sense that if you are being moral for the sake of being moral not to build karma then you, it's different. Because if I'm just doing this because I, it's, I'm what I'm supposed to do versus I'm doing it because I want right. to get brownie points. Brownie points. Um, <laughs> those brownie are, those are two different points. things. Yeah, you're right. And, and so, but in order to like do meditation and wisdom, like you kind of also have to be a good person. So it just kind of goes along with it. And, and those three things are really the key parts to obtaining nirvana. <clears throat> right on. Um, you want to move on to practices? Well, I think before we move on to practices, we should talk about the Great Schism, the great which schism. apparently is what it's called in Buddhism. The great, I hope not to be confused. Great schism. <laughs> not to be confused with the Great Schism of Christianity. But there, there is the Great uh, Schism of Buddhism, what? which I was actually reading today that even during the Buddha's lifetime, there was some conflict, which makes sense because he gives these people this message, tells them to go forth and spread it, and he never is really monitoring what they do. So, <laughs> you know, someone might say it means this versus it means that. So that makes sense to me. But like, it seems to me that people, although there were disputes or whatever in the community, everyone was kind of under somewhat the same house, we'll say. Well, roughly 100 years after he dies, that's not true anymore. And so we have what is called the Great Schism in which for what will be, for the most part, the two big kind of categories in Buddhism arrived. And you mentioned the third one. And of course, this goes on and on and on. There's so many different sects and like beliefs in Buddhism, but like the big two are Theravada and Mahayana. And the easiest way to kind of talk about this without getting too complex, is that Theravada is really based on, not not necessarily what the Buddha did, but like what was happening during the Buddha's lifetime. And that's why the Pali Canon is important to them because that's what was going on with when the Buddha was around. And so that's a key part of it, but it's also in, in maintaining those traditions, but it also really focuses, which I think is also key to the Buddha's life on monastic versus non-monastic. So there are very important things that happen in a monastery versus what are happening with lay people. And that's really key in Theravada. In Mahayana, not as much. I mean, I don't know if not as much is is a fair way of saying it, but just that very- The emphasis is different. Yes, the emphasis is different. The big thing with Mahayana is more about, so the Buddha said some things, this is all great, but we are reinterpreting them. Like what he gave us wasn't complete. So that was the first step. The second step is maybe even reinterpretation is no right way of saying it, but finishing the story. So that's why you get new canons that mention things that the Buddha never talked about. Um, It's also 
much more fluid in terms of the communities that it's in. So there are, there are a lot of, again, monastic rules, non-monastic rules. It does adapt to the communities that it's in. Buddhism in Thailand looks different than Buddhism in Sri Lanka, even though both countries are like the center of Theravada Buddhism. Uh, there's some similarities, but in everyday practice and what individual people who believe as Buddhists in Thailand, there's a lot more of gods and spirits that are happening on. People are wearing amulets. They are praying to figures that isn't necessarily happening in Sri Lanka. So it, it is flexible with incorporating local beliefs, but I would say Mahayana is very, like everything's adapted to the mm-hmm. local community in a way that Theravada like maintains some structures. I think structures. that's probably so, speaks to why there's so many different forms of Mahayana Buddhism because every country's got its own kind or a couple different kinds. Because most of those that I listed at the beginning of the episode are Mahayana forms of Buddhism that are in specific countries. Yes, with the exception of Thailand, but um but yeah, so I would say, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to paint it as like flexible, non-flexible, but I do think that there are like permanent structures that happen in Theravada that then other aspects of the local practices can be incorporated where it's, in Mahayana, it's more flexible on the community. And that's like a very broad generalization. There's also some changes that Mahayana makes to Buddhism that aren't necessarily true in Theravada. And interesting enough, they're actually very similar to Christianity. Uh, So I want to be very clear in saying that Buddhism and Christianity are not similar. But there are elements within specifically Mahayana Buddhism that are similar to Christianity. The first one being the concept of a savior. So Jesus is a savior in Christianity. And that's and it's his what he's trying to do is within service to others. He self-sacrificed himself as service to others. In Mahayana, the highest ideal is a life dedicated to the well-being of the world. So rather than seeking your own salvation, um, which is what the earliest teachings of the Buddha had advised, Instead, there's a lot of emphasis on working to save others. So again, the self-sacrifice, helping on behalf of other people. Then there is the idea of service and selfless love. So Jesus gave his love and in his teachings. And in Mahayana, compassion is one of the most important things that you need to practice. There's also this idea that In Theravada Buddhism, as you kind of said, the Buddha died, he's gone, we're left with his teachings. In Mahayana Buddhism, there's this idea that, okay, the Buddha left, but there's no way that someone who was so compassionate, so devoted to his followers and spreading this message just leaves our existence and and is no longer available to us. So in Mahayana, it developed this idea that the Buddha is out there. Maybe we can't see, we can't feel the Buddha, but the Buddha is continuing to work and is actively working for the welfare of everyone on earth, which is totally different than what you're going to see in Theravada. Uh, And so as a part of this, that the Buddha is out there, it becomes a tradition in Mahayana Buddhism that uh, there's like somewhat of a heavenly realm 
that Buddha is in and Buddha is concerned about the welfare of his, it's almost as if the Buddha is our father and we are his children. He's concerned about his children. Mm -hmm. Very similar to the way that like the God in Christianity is, is the father and he sacrifices his son, but he is concerned about his children who are on. I wonder if a lot of that is similar because go ahead. in Mahayana Buddhism, there is this emphasis on bodhisattva hood, which a bodhisattva is just someone who like the Buddha attains enlightenment, but decides instead of, you know, piecing out of this mortal life, I'm going to stick around for now, even though I've attained enlightenment and make my goal to teach other people, which in some ways is very reflective of like, if you want to look at just Jesus. Yeah. I mean, so I would argue, I w- Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about this part real quick, and then I will respond to that, because I think in the larger picture. Um, and so then, in, co- in this idea that Buddha is in this heavenly space and is, like, looking out for his children, or I don't want to gender Buddha, but Buddha as an entity. Um, so Buddha is, is then assigned three bodies. So there's the earthly body. This was when the Buddha was actually on earth. This body no longer exists. There's the heavenly body in which the Buddha is located in a in a realm somewhere uh, that's away from the world that we currently inhabit, but could actually be considered very similar to like the Christian form of heaven. And then, um, so that's where the Buddha is now, but there is this idea that there is the third body of Buddha, which is very similar to the idea of a second coming in Christianity, in which the Buddha will be known as Maitreya, will appear at the end of the present eon, and again, an eon is a period of time in which a solar system lives. So at the point that a solar system is ready to die, that's the equivalent of an eon. Uh, And so when Maitreya comes, there will be a utopian area in which multitudes of people will gain enlightenment. So very similar to Christianity. Now I say that with a bit of a pause because I think that one could argue that there are influences from Christianity But I also think that this is just a period, this is a product of the place. So we know that this is happening in India. And um, throughout India, it's not uncommon, this still happens today, for there to be basically cults that follow. And I, I say cult as in just a group of people who follow a specific thing, not cult in the negative American Western sense, but a group of people who just follow someone. So like Krishna has a cult where people specifically worship Krishna and believe all these things about Krishna. So while it's very easy many centuries later to see this from a Western perspective, particularly a Christian perspective, I'm wondering if some of this is just not where this is what was happening at the time. Also, we know that like these people likely had contact with Zoroastrians who are the mm-hmm. first known monotheistic uh, community. So they also, like, these could be things that are very similar of Zoroastrians at the time, right? Like, I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's fair to say that it's, they got it from Christianity, but I also think that's unfair to say either, right? Like, especially since, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the the time of the great schism within Buddhism actually happened 
during Jesus's lifetime. So it's between 100 BC and 100 AD. So Jesus would have died. People would have known about him. Of course, it would have been a little far. Don't know how far the message of Jesus had gotten at that time. So it's not out of this world to say that there are some influences from Christianity. But I also think it might be more accurate to say that it's influenced by the people around, which could include other groups, Indian slash Hindu culture, Zoroastrians. Yeah, I think it's I think it's unfair to assume that those ideas are purely Christian, because um, like you're saying, those those ideas, there's a lot of parallels in Zoroastrianism that point to ideas that are in Christianity and other traditions, and so. So, yeah. yeah, I will say that with all that being said, um, Mahayana do not reject the early teachings of the Buddha. They just instead reinterpret them in what could be considered radical ways. And as I mentioned, they see them, their interpretation is kind of recovering the true meaning of what the Buddha had said, which may have been lost in early tradition. And so they see it kind of as that final connection that this is what we really need to be doing. Like we believe these things and what they're, they're important, but we need to move to the next phase in which we get back to the actual meaning of what was being said. And that's kind of like from a philosophical difference obviously they're like different practices and beliefs but like in the big picture that's the difference between Theravada and uh, Mahayana all right you want to move on to some practices yes all right um so there are like many of the other traditions we've talked about there are a whole whole host of different kinds of things that people are actually doing. Um, but for Buddhism, I think, I think we can start talking with like talking about devotional practices. Um, I think this is probably, this is your more like every day, this is what people are doing. Um, and so most devotional practice is not congregational, meaning you're doing this by yourself, but it can be. Um, and in certain times of the year for certain events and things, um, you might, you know, go and go to a temple with a bunch of other people. Um, <clears throat> but most of this practice is taking place on personal shrines, which are going to usually be in someone's home. Um, and this can happen. Usually someone's getting up in the morning and doing this and, People can have all kinds of different things on these shrines. They can have um, they can have depictions of the Buddha. They can have different um, incense and candles and things like that. If you look up like <clears throat> pictures of Buddhist shrines, they pretty much run the gamut from very simple all the way to super elaborate. Um, and then you can also practice devotional activities at shrines and temples. Um, and we're going to put a, we've got a video on the show notes that I found that's like the top 10 Buddhist shrines in the world. I don't know how they determined these are the top 10, um, but it does a good job of showing different Buddhist temples from different regions around the world. Um, and so you get kind of an idea of architecturally how different they look. Um, and so devotional practice typically 
includes going up to a shrine in a temple or in your own home and you bow to sacred objects. Generally, you're doing that three times. Um, and then some people, depending on the region that you're in, so again, this is another instance of um, a practice or a part of these traditions. It's very regional. Um, it's very much determined by what type of Buddhism you're practicing, um, where you're at in the world. But you may, you may kneel, you may hold your hands kind of in front of yourself, you may hold your hands in front of your face. These are all things that depend that vary um, by country and by individual. Um, and then you will give offerings to um, on the shrine, and these can be in the form of flowers, um, lamps. Remember, we talked about we talked about lamps with Hinduism, right? Yes. Um, so they can be lamps similar to what we talked about with Hinduism. Um, candles are also common offerings. Incense is common. And then these are usually accompanied with some sort of chanted verse. Um, and this chanting is often done in ancient languages, according to what I found, which I was curious about your thoughts on that. Um, because I know that a lot of, when you get outside of India, a lot of forms of Buddhism use vernacular language for things. And so I was kind of curious what you thought about that. Yeah, so I think it depends. And I would argue that a vast majority of Buddhists are probably chanting in their vernacular language. It's only the monks who are probably chanting in a more ancient language or older language. And my guess is that's dependent on how long they have been in the monastery. Yeah, because part of the reason I ask that is because um, in Pure Land Buddhism, particularly in Japan, there is a sort of a, a practice that you're supposed to do all the time where you're like constantly reciting the name of this one particular bodhisattva. And when you're chanting that name, it is not a name that is in Pali. It's not in Tibetan. It's in Japanese. Yeah, but also remember that um, Pali is only important in Theravada. True. Japan is Mahayana. Yeah, that's true. Tibetan is really only important for Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I think there are some texts that cross the border in Mahayana that utilize Tibetan, but they're kind of doing their own thing. Right. So I think for other, as I think I mentioned this before, for other communities, they that's where you get the variety in canons, typically in the local vernacular. Um, and so... So for these devotional practices are generally thought to generate merit and merit is something that in Buddhism you're trying, basically it's, I don't know if this is such a strong tradition in Theravada, in Theravada Buddhism, or if this is more a Mahayana thing, because I've only heard of it in the, con in the context of Mahayana Buddhism. Oh no, it's definitely strong. In oh, Theravada. okay. It is. Okay. Um, and so, yeah. So this is this idea that throughout your life, you are accruing these sort of good deeds kind of, and it's, it's different from karma because, and yes. I'm not quite sure like where that line gets drawn, but cause I know that, um, there's lots of different things you're doing to generate merit. So like you can be doing these devotional activities, there's particular ritual things that you can participate in. Um, like for instance, I know about this one ritual where <clears throat> basically this is really popular in China and in parts of Southeast Asia where people will 
go and purchase animals. Lots of times it's birds or fish or turtles, and they will essentially teach them the Dharma and convert them to Buddhism and then turn around and release them to gain merit, which has all these like ecological problems because a lot of the animals that are getting released are non-native. Um, if you're familiar with snakeheads in the United States, there is a theory that's pretty strong that, um, th is, that argues that snakeheads got first introduced into the United States by Buddhists um, doing this particular ritual. Um, but yeah, so like you're doing lots of these things to accrue merit, which then helps you in your rebirth. And I don't know if you, if you know where that line is between merit and karma. Karma translates to action. These are actions that impact your uh, future lifetimes. Right. Merit is basically spiritual capital, and you can pass merit on to other people. Oh, that's right. That's true. So, like, it is transferable. Merit is good, but it's transferable. Right. Did you have anything else you want to talk about with devotion specifically or devotional practices? Um, no. I would just say that. Um, in terms of like holidays and stuff, yeah. it's, I mean, it's, so it's difficult to say, oh, this is a holiday, right? But I think pretty much across the board, like the Buddha's birth and certain moments in his life are celebrated. Now, how they're celebrated is definitely dependent mm -hmm. on the community, but I think across the board, those are at least recognized right. days. Um, and then I know Theravada follows a, lunar calendar and so on the four times a month there are auspicious days that are celebrated and that's being the uh or i guess the sacred days um the full moon half moon new moon and uh waxing moon so those are kind of important things and that's really all I have to say. I do know that oftentimes in terms of like practices, the Buddha was cremated. And so it's a tradition that a lot of people choose to be cremated. And often the funeral is on the same day, although it doesn't have to be. And Theravada, I believe you get three days of mourning and often the person is in the house uh, and then funeral rites begin. But it's almost always the person is cremated. All right. I just want to make sure I didn't like move on before you had something. Um, no, so no, no. <clears throat> another important practice in Buddhism is pilgrimage, which I think we've seen in almost every single tradition we've talked about um, in some form or another. Um, and so pilgrimage can be done for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, it can be done to gain merit. It can done. It, I, in my research, I found that like you can go on a pilgrimage to a specific site that is important in the life of the Buddha on one of these days that you're talking about. So for instance, you could go to um, the site of his first teaching on the day of his first teaching. And it's meant to sort of make it so that you experience that event in a way without actually being there, which I found really interesting. It was, it was, described as sort of a way to like connect yourself with that event without actually having been, been there. Um, and it's also, I also saw that you could like 
go on a pilgrimage to receive protection from a particular deity, from particular shrines and temples and things like that. Or um, if you made like a vow, for instance, to go on a pilgrimage, um, then you would go to fulfill that vow. Um, and so some of these important, or some of these places you would go for pilgrimage include, um, you know, places that were important in the life of the Buddha, important local sites. So like we've been saying this whole time, you know, a lot of these traditions incorporate local folk traditions, local indigenous traditions. Um, and so if there are sites that are important in those traditions that then get incorporated into that, Buddha, into that Buddhist tradition, then those can be places of pilgrimage or places where um, that are important for certain bodhisattvas. Um, also places where relics are kept. Um, relics are surprisingly, I don't know, I thought it was surprising, maybe it's not surprising for anyone else, um, but relics are really important in Buddhism. And there's like a place in, and I forget, I cannot remember where it is. And I should have looked this up. There is a temple that claims to have a molar that was the Buddha's. And people will like, mm, maybe. Sri Lanka? I mean, that would just be the top. I don't remember. Uh, I mean, and I, I can... should know this. It is in Sri Lanka. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so there are relics from the Buddha, there are relics from other bodhisattvas, and you can make, you know, a pilgrimage to go see those. And it's similar, very similar to how um, relics are viewed in Catholicism. I don't know if it's quite so regimented, because in Catholicism there are like different levels of relics, and so you have first order relics, and second order, and third order relics, and those all mean certain things, which. We'll get to those later. If you want to learn about that, tell us about it. And then we'll bring it up in our Catholicism episode. Um, but so, yeah, so that's pilgrimage. Cool. I don't have okay. anything else about pilgrimage. Um, and then I did want to mention monastic orders. So we've been talking about that a lot. A monastic is much more capable of, or going becoming a monastic makes it that much easier for you to attain enlightenment because you're able to check out of some of the desires of the world. Um, and so you can help, help yourself in a way become closer to enlightenment by getting out of, you know, the things that we do to distract ourselves in our everyday life. So that's what I got. Um, I don't have anything else. I think that's it. That's Buddhism. We talked about a lot. I think a lot of, that people know, but then some stuff that people probably don't know. So hopefully right. people learn something in this episode. I know mm -hmm. I definitely learned a lot. So thank you for listening. Um, I, pre I personally appreciate you listening to us rambling about religion. Um, rambling about religion. That would have been such a good title for this podcast. Anyway, <laughs> if you like what we're doing here, please, please, please give us a review. Um, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, a star rating. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like because we can't change it until you tell us what we don't or what you don't like. Um, you can find us on Twitter at ReligiousLitPod and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ReligiouslyLiterate. If you do nothing else, like Jay has said in previous episodes, go follow us on Twitter because I like to use gifs in our tweets and it's fun. Um, but yeah, um, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is that you find podcasts, we're probably there. Tell your friends, tell your mom, 